This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. We're back after a short break for our spring holidays. I had a very nice time. Thank you very much for asking. I'm Simon Kirchner, philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 21st of April. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with the consequences still being felt across Europe and the rest of the world. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has apologised to Parliament for being fined by the Metropolitan Police in relation to Partygate, and in France, the presidential election is reaching a crescendo. This week, we'll be thinking about mask wearing in the USA and elsewhere, the UK government's latest plan to send refugees to Rwanda, and the relationship between the government and the House of Lords, and Elon Musk's attempt to take over Twitter. Although I, I should say, each week it's becoming very difficult to write all of these introductions because there's so much going on, so much uh, coming out of the woodwork. Um, uh, and talking of coming out of the woodwork, time to introduce this week's guest. Uh, so uh, very pleased to have Julian Bergini back with us. Julian's uh, the author of many books and also academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Hi, Julian. Yeah, it's good to be back out of the woodwork for you, Simon. Uh, and we've got two new guests uh, making their first appearance. First of all, Chris Henry, who's a political philosopher from here at the University of Kent. Hi, Chris. Hello. Thanks for the invite. Nice to be here. And uh, Fiona Woolard, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southampton. Hi, Fiona. Hello, lovely to be here. Great, great to have all three of you. Um, Okay, so let's get to our first item then. This week, a federal judge in Florida effectively ended the Biden administration's mandate for mask wearing in airplanes and other forms of public transit across the whole of the US. Um, Some social media users reported that the order was announced immediately on their planes mid-flight, prompting some people to remove their masks straight away, uh, which caused jubilation for some and chaos and concern for others. Um, Fiona, you raised this for us as something to discuss. Yes, I did. The reason this caught my eye um, was really that I think there was an instinctive reaction that there was something wrong with ending the mandate in the middle of a flight, in midair, when people had no choice, <laughs> no no ability to really get off the aeroplane. And that led me to think more broadly about whether there's a kind of obligation to keep to the the laws and the the, the um, expectations um, that that were in place when you get on an aeroplane. And also whether that depends upon whether we think the the rules are good ones. I mean, because you can think of cases where there has been a rule that we disagree with. Maybe imagine that there was a rule requiring segregation of women and men, and that was ended mid-flight. I think I would feel kind of differently about that. I would would be quite happy about the scenes of jubilation as men and women moved to sit together. So... um, yeah, I, I was just think. It led to me to think about the the kind of ethics of changing rules in midair. Okay, thanks. That's great, um, Julian. Chris, any thoughts about this from from either of you? Yeah, well, it's, it's a very interesting case. Um, 
And I think what Fiona was saying is quite interesting about time is whether, whether or not you agree or disagree. And you know, I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure that's the key issue. I think look, there are two kinds of rules which we might want to change. Okay, so in the first kind, I think a lot of the rules we come up with to govern how we interact with society are about competing interests, right? So there is the freedom to do what you want, not to wear a mask if you don't want to, against the uh, freedom of other people to feel safe, to be protected. And it's clearly that, you know, in a situation like with mask mandates, you are having to, to balance competing interests. And w when you reach a kind of equilibrium on that, I think part of what's important is that people know what the equilibrium is and it's accepted. And so changing the walls with a snap of a finger <laughs> is kind of really unfair. There are other kind of rules that society has, which are just plain unjust <laughs> and wrong. Um, it's not about balancing interests. It's about denying certain people rights and interests. And if you decide to abolish those, there's no harm in abolishing them with a snap of a finger, right? So again, if you've got a, rules around like racial segregation, which there have been, um, you can imagine, for example, what about if racial segregation in US were abandoned in an instant, it was announced on a flight. Well, sure, some people might be upset that they, that they may now have to sit next to someone with a different skin colour, you know. But I don't think we'd consider that to be a problem because there's no significant harm in that at all. In fact, <laughs> the person who feels it's a harm is just is gravely mistaken. So I'm not, I'm not claiming this is a full account here, but I think there's something different about when you're abolishing an unjust rule and when you're changing the kind of accommodation we've come to to balance interests. So my example of um, men and women being segregated, so, uh, you know, if we have some religions where they are, uh, there are people who genuinely believe that they should, they can't, that they cannot sit next to somebody of the opposite sex because of their religion, would you see that as a, a, a competing interest and a case where the equilibrium should be should not be changed mid-flight? I mean, that that is really interesting, actually. And given that um, in the grand scheme of things, what matters is that the change comes about, not that it happens at like any particular moment. I think it would probably be worth protecting the religious sensibilities of people who did believe in this and just to delay it to the end of the flight even then. I mean, generally speaking, where, where there are not terrible harms caused by respecting people's beliefs, even when we think they're totally mistaken, which I, I think they are in this case. Because I think, part of what, what made me interested in this example you, you gave, Fiona, was that I think when we talk about sort of you know, moral dilemmas, there is a tendency to sort of think about them in terms of what the you know, the, the abstract, ideal, universal moral principle is. But I think so much of this stuff is actually just about how we keep society running along smoothly and keeping people as happy as possible, given that they have different fundamental values. And I, I, so I think actually that's often a, a very good reason to sort of think about at least how you do things and when you do them is simply a question of, you know, what, what's going to result in the most, what's going to be the most harmonious result for all parties involved? Uh, yeah, Chris. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> given that this was on a flight and there's, uh, in America, I wonder if there's sort of a litigious angle as well, sort of protection against being sued, which which happened quite a lot. Um, but I wonder if there's, there seem to be two perhaps sort of obligations underpinning the rules 
for mask wearing, certainly on an aeroplane. On the one hand, there seems to be an obligation to protect public health. And so like there was a public health interest underpinning um, people wearing masks, it prevented the spread of the virus. But on the other hand, the obligation seems to be to protect people's comfortableness, right? And so in the reporting um, of the, the ban being lifted, much of the reporting focused on whether or not people were feeling comfortable wearing the masks or not. And somehow it, it seems to me that the word comfortable creeps up a lot more in the reporting. Uh, and I personally, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. I, I, don't, I can't really fit the word comfortable into my sort of understanding of moral philosophy. Is it an interest worth protecting? Um, you know, Mill would say no. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay, there's, there's a good point. I think when I was using the word comfortable, I, it probably wasn't the right word then, I think. Because I, I think I think you're right. If it's merely uncomfortable, that's not really a good enough reason. I think the, what I was thinking about where was where it would really um, rub up against people's quite deep-rooted religious sensibilities. I use the word discomfort there, but um, I think it, it's stronger than just, oh, this doesn't feel quite right to me, you know because um, because if it were just if it were just i'm a bit i feel a bit uncomfortable around this it, it is hard I, I agree with you it's hard to see how there's a, a a moral justification for that although again maybe maybe the thing about the consent is that um for example do, do you have a right to um let, let's put it this way if you if you if you go to see a comedy show or theater show um and you know you perhaps you are just uncomfortable around nudity for example and you you don't believe that to be a moral thing right you accept that you say there's nothing wrong with nudity i know that but i just don't i just find myself uncomfortable around it right um and so if you were misled into thinking there was no if you were actually misled into thinking there was no nudity in a show and there actually was then I think you have a sort of a, a very minor grievance <laughs> against it. But, I mean, we're really talking very, very minor and small, trivial points. I, 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 I think I'm agreeing with you that it's hard to think of discomfort being a significant moral concern. I was just going to say I, I love the fact that we both immediately think about nudity because I, I was going <laughs> to, you know, say what what if um, – if they the rule that they'd said was le- lifted on the plane was the requirement to wear clothes, and, and suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the, the, the pilot is encouraging everybody to you know take off their their trousers and uh, and things, and um, that I think I would feel quite uncomfortable in that situation, and that um, I mean, particularly because on the airplane you can't you can't leave. Um, I, I would feel that, that there was there was a problem there with the discomfort of being forced to be around lots of naked people when I hadn't that. Yeah. I mean, presumably now just picking up on Chris's question about comfortableness. I mean, so there's, there's something which is literal physical comfortableness about wearing a mask, um, which I mean, obviously there there are some people with, with health concerns, but, but otherwise it's, that doesn't seem to be uh, a striking moral issue. But then there's the issues of feeling comfortable around nudity or swearing or whatever it might be in a in a in a an aeroplane or a theatre. And that's a different sort of thing. That's a kind of uh, somewhat physical but also an emotional kind of reaction, isn't it? Really. And that's the sort of thing we're we're thinking about. So in my in my um sort of day job with my other mask on and, and I work for the UCU as a branch officer and we have quite a lot of communication from people who use the word comfort um, often in combination with um, an anxiety condition 
And so there are cases in which the concept of comfort sort of resonates more or less strongly with, with people with anxiety conditions. And then in that circumstance might take on perhaps more moral weight than it might for others who don't. That being said, it's interesting for me to think about even in that condition when somebody you know has genuine concerns as a result of um, a medically prescribed condition to what extent does a concept like con- like comfort have greater moral weight than for anybody else in the sense that it's a genuine interest that somebody has i can understand that but then it doesn't strike me that it has overwhelmingly greater moral significance than other perhaps public health interests um, we'd have to sort of toss it up in equal measure. I think comfort is also some, it's, it's become a kind of word that's used instead of using other more precise terms. So one thing that I get quite bothered about is that people describe those who want others to wear masks as feeling uncomfortable. They said that, you know, wear another mask, wear a mask, if it's going to make other people feel comfortable mm. and then the kind of the desire of one person to kind of not be exposed to the virus so their health concerns are equated with the kind of feelings of company you know, that the, the not feeling uncomfortable wearing a mask which could be physical but could also be feeling a bit awkward and so it's all kind of becomes kind of equalized and we don't see that there might be a difference between um, health-based concerns and other types of concerns. Yeah, that's a good point. Guilty as charged. So I think like when I talked about religious people feeling uncomfortable about certain things, I think you're right. I was using a vague term when I should have used something more precise. Actually, what they're feeling is, in a way, you know, morally offended or whatever it might be. Um, and I, I, but I'm, I'm just speculating now as to why this term, terms like comfortable have become so... Uh, widespread and, and I'm wondering whether part of it might be that you know we, there is this sort of general belief that people are a bit squeamish about using moral language because they don't want to be moralistic and the idea is that who am I to tell you what your moral values are and what's right for me what might be wrong for you etc but we're very comfortable about talking about emotional well-being we kind of think emotional well-being is is kind of objective and it's real and and, and people want to say that you know mental health is equivalent to physical health because that's a way of like giving it due seriousness so in a way perhaps we're more we're more comfortable <laughs> um using language which relates to people's emotions and, and, and emotional well-being than we are using terms around moral morality and ethics which we think oh am i overstepping the mark by talking about that perhaps if there's there's some history to this though i mean i wonder if there's some sort of similarity in usage, at least, between the word comfort and something like ataraxia. So a sort of pleasure that isn't, that isn't sort of elation, it's not immediate pleasure that requires um, maybe a sacrifice to get to, but a sort of contemplative happiness, the sort of thing that you have when you don't actually have any losses, uh, when, when, when you don't feel any particular desire because you don't have, you know, you're not missing anything. Um, and, you know, ataraxia has a, has a history way back in the ancient Greeks and the Stoics picked it up. And it might be that rather than being an ab- sort of an absence of critical thought or an absence of, um, of sort of confidence using moral language, in, in fact, actually, it's a popularization of some moral philosophy. <laughs> maybe, maybe we've actually been doing our jobs and haven't <laughs> realized it. And the sort of language that we, um, 
that we use in classrooms and whatnot in academia uh, has been translated into common usage. Ataraxia is a horrible word, but you know, comfort then is um, is like a goal that we that we've been talking about for thousands of years now. Yeah, it goes back to Julian. Earlier on, you were talking about social harmony, right? Trying to find that balance uh, in this, and in this case, it's between those people that you know want to have a certain amount of freedom and don't want to have this this mask imposed on them, and then other people who are feeling you know vulnerable. And we're trying to to reach some sort of balance of interests where there's a kind of harmony, or indeed you know a type of comfort where everyone can see, okay, this is where we've settled. Okay, now I know what's happening. And of course, going back to this particular example, what's what's particularly interesting and bad about it is that things change mid-flight and people couldn't do anything about it, right? So the what what seemed to be the established rules and what was going to happen was suddenly thrown up, you know, literally in the air, and people didn't know didn't know where where they stood. So perhaps it's it's that kind of feeling of social harmony and balance. So pr- perhaps we have been doing our jobs. That's great. I I think it's also important not to kind of discount the the kind of the the, the freedom argument i mean uh-huh. i do think that genuine gen generally if we were just told to wear something you know wear a mask for no good reason yeah then i you know that is that 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 would be i mean maybe it's not so much about comfort but it's it's you know it would be a restriction on freedom and those do generally need to be justified um I mean, of course, we have requirements about dress that aren't so justified that we all accept. But generally, a new kind of requirement does a new restriction on what you're allowed to wear does seem to require some kind of justification. For me, it kind of matters a lot that that we're that masks that wearing a mask is to stop you doing harm to other people. So, I the way I like to think about approaching this is to kind of recognize that limitations on freedom especially which require you to do something wear a mask that's doing something need justification and then just to kind of focus on the potential harm that you could do if you don't wear a mask yeah which is why i think you know i don't understand the fuss about mask mandates it's classical john stuart mill harm principle stuff the reason why you have to wear a mask is that you're free to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't cause harm to others. By not wearing a mask, you are potentially causing harm to others in a very real sense. And, you know, the, the, the amount of harm being done, I mean, with all that's been going on, a combination of, you know, fatigue uh, with, the, with the pandemic and other events which are more dramatic going on, people aren't noticing that death rates have been pretty damn high. I mean, they haven't been as high as the first two waves but they've been higher than a lot of the uh, lulls and somehow it sort of it annoys me as one of the (laughs) in the minority now who's routinely wearing masks that people are kind of assuming that they they don't have to when yeah this 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 could infect people i i i I heard only yesterday actually of, of a uh, old friend of mine who died, and I haven't got the full circumstances yet, I th- but he contracted coronavirus in hospital. And I don't know whether or not um, that was what, what killed him or whether it is what put him into hospital that killed him. Um, but this kind of thing is happening because it's spreading very easily, because people aren't wearing masks. It's a straightforward harm argument. So he, he, I'm not saying that's the end of the story, but um, the idea that we start with the presumption that this is an awful uh, restriction on freedom 
which requires an extraordinary justification. No, it doesn't. The justification is really straightforward. I, I, you know, we shouldn't be giving this to other people if we can avoid it. I guess I, th- I'm so far, sorry, I'm very sorry for for your loss, but I think that it's partly because it was framed as doing something. You know, all the restrictions have been framed as sort of save lives rather than don't kill people. <laughs> so I think a lot of people do not realise that they don't think about it that way. They don't think of it as an application of the harm principle because they think they are saving people. And it is slightly, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of case because it is a case where you're required to do something in order not to harm people. So wearing a mask is is doing something. So we do, you know, more classic cases are cases where you just you would have to just refrain from doing something to avoid harming someone. So it's slightly unusual in in terms of the application of the the harm principle and the rhetoric has been when you're doing this to save others and I think that's why people get confused and don't and they see it as I mean, also, there is a kind of, well, just you can just wear a mask if you want to wear a mask rhetoric, um, personal responsibility rhetoric, personal choice rhetoric, which has made people think, yeah, if you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. And they don't see that (laughs) that doesn't work when masks are to protect other people from you. That's I think that's yeah, that's really helpful. Um, But Right at the beginning of the the first lockdown, I don't know if you saw it, there was a a discussion on uh, coronavirus by various different philosophers, one of them being Agamben. And Agamben came out with this line and he said, um, sort of the standard biopolitical thing, he said all of the coronavirus regulations, it's just an attempt to sort of control individuals. And he was really, really quite condemnatory of it. And it ruined his reputation because a bunch of people turned around and said, no, it's stopping people dying. And actually what's happening is it's not rules that are sort of separating us from each other. What's happening is that we're recognizing that we are potential threats to, to each other. So when, you know, the 14 year old boy stands out, uh, stands two meters apart from the the 70 year old guy at the doorstep in order to drop off the, the shopping, they're actually protecting that person. It's a development of a, of a, of a social in a different way than we, we saw before. And we were so close, weren't we, to developing a really sort of rich um, social in sort of Western neoliberal countries. Um, but we didn't quite get there far enough um, because when the mask mandates were removed, Lots of people, not not everybody. I mean, uh, you know, I, I as well wear masks a lot of the time when I go out, although they're FFP2 masks for the protection of me rather than just everybody else. We went back to that thought of, you know, well, I'm, I'm the sort of central person in my world and I don't fit necessarily within a sort of social where we have to think about everybody else at the, at the same time. I kind of lament that and I, I see a lot of, I don't know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, nihilism in, in people's decision making at the moment seems to be as a as a sort of reaction against that either anxiety during the COVID process or sort of being immersed in a, in a, an idea of the social sort of shared social that, that they hadn't experienced before <laughs> to like retreat back into a sort of individualistic world and that but I, I see that in myself as well you know one of the reasons why I wear a mask 
is because I don't want to get COVID from the people who are not wearing masks around me. And that didn't feature into my thinking beforehand when I was wearing the mask. So it would be interesting on, on the planes, you know, when, when people are being told that they have to take off the masks, how many of those masks that people were wearing were FFP2 masks for the protection of themselves rather than others? Did they keep those on? So the FFP2 masks do protect others as well, yeah. though. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have heard of um, some masks being not allowed, which were for the prote- for the protection of the person wearing them. They were that, but they didn't filter the outgoing air, and so they weren't allowed. Which is quite, I think, interesting that we will now see people wearing perhaps these masks which protect them but don't protect others. Yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of things going through my head at this point. So, you know, friends of mine who who went to different countries when when they could and being used to wearing certain sorts of masks in this country and then just meeting a kind of cultural kind of look and glare because people weren't used to seeing those sorts of masks in their country and they were a bit bit worried about whether they were the acceptable sorts of masks. Um sorts of things like that. Listen, that was a really interesting discussion. Should we just leave it there and then um, we'll uh, join you all in the in the next part when we'll be thinking about legitimacy in the House of Lords. And welcome back. This week, the UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel, announced a new proposal for some asylum seekers to be re- relocated to Rwanda. We can talk about that controversial policy itself. Um, But what you found interesting, Chris, is the reaction of the Lords in the UK House of Lords in relation to this and uh, and other proposals we've seen. Do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, so I think uh, the House of Lords is generally criticised by at least the political left in the UK for being undemocratic and representative, full of um, sort of old white guys. Um, But what's what's interesting is that they, they seem to sort of side with the British population and charities and pressure groups quite quite a lot in the last few years. And so they resisted uh, Boris Johnson's ultimately deemed unlawful prorogation of parliament a couple of years ago. They've um, been pretty vociferous in their uh, rejection of the refugee plans to Rwanda. And so I kind of want to think about challenging the claims to legitimacy that the left uh, tend to sort of ground um, their, their political philosophies on, which is slightly strange, um, considering I, I, I think I, I see myself on, as being part of the political left as well. So the legitimacy generally comes from the ballot box. Um, it's generally understood. Um, but to what extent is um, the House of Lords, for example, legitimate because it uh, reinforces concepts like tradition or expertise? And I, I guess as a second interest, I, I I wonder if there are sort of functional differences in our bicameral legislature that, that come into play as compared with other legislatures, um, for example, ones that are entirely elected, though I, I, I don't have much practical knowledge of that. So I, I'm looking to, to you lot to help me out with that. OK, thanks. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Julian, Fiona, any thoughts uh, about about this? Yes. <laughs> no, I think this is very interesting, actually. And I, I, it's become a bit of a almost a hobby horse of, of mine over the years to sort of I, I get I get a bit annoyed that I think that people have a very, uh, I think, narrow view of what democracy 
is, or let's put it this way, that they, they fetishize democracy as the, the cornerstone of a just political system. And I always go back to you know, the criticisms made of democracy by Plato and Aristotle, who pointed out that you know, it's certain kind of, should we say, unfettered democracy, where it is simply you know, the, the, the majority wins and acts, is actually profoundly a bad system because it gives the tyranny of the majority. And it also, Aristotle talked about it undermining the rule of law. So the idea here being, you remember that Trump was threatening to send Hillary Clinton to jail. So the idea here being that, um, you know, conceivably in a democracy that could happen, that you have Hillary Clinton does nothing illegal, someone wins an election, changes the law to stitch her up for something, and she's in prison. That's profoundly illiberal, unfair. So I think that, and, and also as philosophers, I think philosophers often tend to think about, you know, ideal political systems in a fairly abstract way. And I know there's been a, a move against that, or is it non-ideal political theory or something, which <laughs> it makes me laugh a bit, because I think surely all political theory should have been non-ideal, uh, because we have to deal with the real world. But anyway, so I think, I think so, so going back to this particular case in point, I think, you know, I certainly think the House of Lords on paper is a ridiculous institution, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But as a matter of fact, at the moment, it's playing a role in the political system of, I think, trying to uphold principles of, of rule of law above anything else, right? Um, not just in the literal sense of the word, but trying to, as it were, uphold the principle that the population has a reasonable expectation about what kind of norms and practices are should be considered fairly stable and, and persistent and can't just be turned out on a whim. And because it's doing that, it's playing an important role in a in a free in, in sort of a free society and in a, in, a, in, a, in a government which serves the interests of the people. And I think you can th- believe that, while at the same time believing that we should, over time, reform this institution because its legitimacy is fundamentally not there. Um, and again, and I guess so I'm going on a bit too long here, perhaps. But and I think this perhaps is where I do have a sympathy with the conservative sort of analysis, which is that when thinking about political systems in any country, you should always try to think a lot about the context and the history and not just think about what in abstract principles is, is the fair or right system. And that sometimes there is a reason to persist uh, with a certain way of doing things, even if on paper it's ridiculous. Now, I, I wouldn't go that far with the House of Lords. I think we should be reforming it. But I would grant to the Conservatives in this case that this is perhaps an example of where, as a matter of fact, something which is in principle ridiculous is um, helping maintain aspects of of our society which would be under threat if we were simply giving the party which was elected uh, to to govern the last last time a free hand to do whatever it, it wanted, which would be awful. So you said that the House of Lords is is not legitimate and that you want to reform it. So I wonder if if I could push you on how how it's not legitimate because you know the st- the standard sort of answer to that would be because it's not democratic and it needs to be grounded in 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 some form of electoral base. But I think you quite rightly sort of brought up Plato and Aristotle's critique of, of democracy and you know the tyranny of majority etc. And so I wonder how else we might derive legitimacy or from, from what we might derive legitimacy. So 
Plato said, well, we should probably have a group of really educated people who were somehow disconnected from society sitting over there that tell the, the rest of the world what to do. And it would be quite nice, I think, if I could be promoted to, to be in one of those as a member of a, a, a university. But I think that will probably be a terrible idea because I don't think academics make, you know, we're not, we're not trained in, in, in governing institutions uh, unless you become trained in governing institutions. Um, <laughs> looking at Simon. Uh, and so I don't know. Could it be possibly other values that are enshrined in, in, in institutions? So as a sort of collective base over a period of time, we go, well, OK, so there are certain virtues or certain values that we think should um, be upheld in a country. We design an inst- a part of our government to uphold those, um, those ideas. And in the British case, that seems to me to have happened in the House of Lords. Now, then we've got a choice. We say, well, OK. Is the House of Lords um, problematic by design? The very idea of the House of Lords is is wrong and needs reforming because it's not elected. Or is it the case that the House of Lords needs reforming because it is full of old white men who have basically been put there by prime ministers? And what we need is a way of sort of changing the members of that House of Lords in, in order to better reflect a certain set of values. Though would that then not just be a democratic body? So th- this strikes me as, you know, the, the grounds for where legitimacy of the second house lies is really challenging. And I can't work out if it's a problem by design issue or if it's a problem of um, sort of manifestation issue. Could, could, it, be, could it be some sort of hybrid? Because it seems, I'd like, I'd like to, by the way, I'd like to know what Fiona thinks about this, though, but it, it seems to me that I, I kind of agree that I, I, I think there's something of benefit in having a chamber which contains people of experience and expertise and you know, it's thanks to our system we have people like, you know, Nora O'Neill, for example, one of our our philosophers in there, who's a great public philosopher and a very thoughtful public servant, who wouldn't be elected in any probably wouldn't stand for election in a in a in a direct election. I think the problem, and 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 I, and I, so I would agree as well that it seems a bit strange that the only legitimate procedure for getting people into such a chamber would be a direct election of the whole uh, population. I think the problem we've got in the House of Lords is that the selection criteria are too arbitrary. So there are still people there who have inherited their titles, which is ridiculous. And also there are people there just out of pure political patronage, just kind of favours and pats on the backs. I, I think it would be in the spirit of democracy to have um, a chamber where we put people who we recognise of, of public servants of great expertise in a non-partisan basis. And I think the, the the thing to do would be to find a selection procedure for that, which was was fairer. Uh, I think, I mean, citizen, a citizen's jury of kind, in a way, would be ideal. I think that there should be nominations to the Lords and, like, you know, a randomly plucked selection of the population should be given the chance to deliberate properly over it to select them. Because if you just did it in a general election of the whole population, 99% of people would be voting on the basis of no information at all or... or just what their favourite news outlet was saying about people. That's really interesting. I mean, I was thinking, I, I, I have concerns about about the elections. I think it's a good thing that the House of Lords is not elected because I think that gives them the freedom to make decisions about what's right rather than about what's going to get them re-elected. Um, so I do think that that the unelected body <laughs> plays quite an important role. 
and I share the concerns that many uh, peers are now elected politically, and that is a, a concern. I was going to suggest that we go more arbitrary rather than less arbitrary. So, um, you know, some sort of you mentioned a jury, and you know, you could have a House of Lords on the same kind of um, the same kind of basis. So you've added a different step, a step in, uh, to my kind of initial thought. It would might be good to have a, a jury to from. So now we have a jury deciding the people. I guess that then does give us the worry about whether people will then, whether we'll suffer the same kind of problem of the tyranny of the majority and the, the kind of need to get yourself elected and whether it will then become, will lose that kind of... Um, benefit of being unelected it's interesting listening to three of you it's, it's like i'm 20 again and studying comparative government <laughs> and, and trying to you know, uh all sorts of essays and things comparing the british system to uh the us and france and, and elsewhere yeah so i think uh i think you've set up a really interesting um discussion and and an issue chris not just about the particular um, things we're seeing at the moment and controversies, uh, but there's there's all sorts of interesting ways in which the Lords has changed over the last few years and its relationship with the House of Commons and 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 the government of the of the day. Um, just listening to to Julian and Fiona there about you know how how would if you're not going to have an unelected second chamber that has a certain number of powers and a certain number of checks and balances that are expected of it by the the evolving constitution, how arbitrary do we make the the membership? And actually, I think I probably favoured Julian's thought so that, I mean, because there's all sorts of proposals out there. I think that my worry is that if we just chose by lot, which I think is what you were suggesting, Fiona, you can end up with a whole group of people there who actually might be a bit bewildered by what goes on in the Lords. I mean, you need a certain amount of expertise to be able to scrutinise legislation. I think, in a way, that, that, that's, that's the most important thing about what the Lords does. And so you need to have people who are attuned and to have a certain level of ability to do that and that will probably rule out quite a few people unless they've got some specialized training but so go on Fiona. I was going to say my my kind of jury idea wasn't entirely serious okay uh, it, uh, it was but it was kind of taking the maybe I should say this I think that one of the problems with the current house of lords is I mean Chris described it as kind of old white guys but it is not representative. Yeah. So a concern is if when people, when the people making the decisions don't represent the people, are not representative of the people who are going to be affected by the decisions, are some interests going to be favoured over others? So the kind of, uh, I was, you know, if we take that to the furthest, um, we react as far as possible against that, a kind of random selection of the population seems like an initial suggestion, but I, I it wasn't entirely serious because I think there are obviously sure. some. So some here's, here's a worry I've got about. I mean, because there's a few thoughts floating around here around you know. So Chris talked about legitimacy and tradition and so on. So there's another one here about representation, which which this is getting to the heart of. So if you think about what happens in the US, where you've got you know two houses in effect but in the, in this case both elected but what's interesting is in, with the senate you get two representatives no matter how large the state no matter how large the population right 
And actually, there's something to be... And so in one sense, it's unrepresentative, right? Um, because it, it's not proportionate to the, the, the size of the state and size of the, the population. You can say similar things elsewhere. And actually, that's something interesting to be thought about with the lords, right? So we haven't mentioned bishops, right? So bishops, there, <laughs> yeah. they're, always, they're always talked about, well, should, why should we carry on having bishops there just because of the 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 job they do and because of the historic links of the of the church and so the house of lords often represents the kind of concerns of the country at the at the time and so one thing that might be uh interesting to think about in relation to the house of lords is whether geographically it should be representative because of what's happening in the united kingdom at the moment and actually it should be in the same way as the senate is in the us kind of non not proportionally representative so you have equal number of people from parts of England and Scotland and Wales and, and Northern Ireland. That might be a way of doing it. So in a way that that's, that would kind of set uh, rules and principles. And then, but then within that, then there'd be choices to make about, about who would, who would actually fulfill those roles. Um, sorry, Julian, you wanted to come in as well on that. Uh, cheers. I, I mean, what, this is really interesting because we're throwing around really it's sort of a lot of ideals that we yeah. think should be, like the key ideals to which government should be orientated. On the one hand, it's sort of arbitrariness. On the other hand, like it might be geography, various things like that. What what strikes me is that every time we talk uh, in this in this country and have a public debate about what sort of the country's values might be, it gets labelled with a sort of British values thing, and then you know the Daily Mail catches hold of it, and the Guardian doesn't take it seriously, and it becomes very very difficult to have a debate, which is nevertheless maybe quite important, not at this sort of trite nationalistic level. But um, John Gray wrote a book um, a, few, a few years back that said, you know, we, we kind of need a form of patriotism, a sort of non-exclusive patriotism to guide a country forward in order for it to, 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 to be excellent. You've got to be excellent at something unless you don't want to be excellent. And, you know, OK, so put forward an idea of why you don't want to be excellent. But unless you want to be um, in, in order for you to be excellent or good or you know competent at something, you've got to have a, a sort of an idea of what it is that you're going to orientate yourself towards. And I wonder how we get ourselves into a position in this country where we can have a debate much like the sort of debate that we're having here, but on a grander scale um, in public without it being sort of co-opted by, by the far right and without it being sort of slated by anyone left of centre. That's yeah. probably not too helpful a <laughs> question. <laughs> Answers on a postcard. It's a big debate. Look, I mean, this may, may not be. I think the patriotism we're talking about. This idea of civic patriotism is one. I, I've never considered myself particularly patriotic because I think I also always associated that with a kind of a nationalism which I didn't like around sort of you know Anglo-Saxonness, whatever the hell that means. I'm half Italian as well, of course. Um, civic nationalism, which was what the Scottish Nationalist Party really tried to promote in when they were campaigning in the last um, referendum, is something which is much more attractive. It's that idea. And I think we're seeing it, people are saying that's the kind of nationalism which you've now got in Ukraine. The Ukraine has a history of being rather you know, diverse and having tensions between its ethnic minorities. But somehow you know, being invaded has created a very strong sense of, of, of civic patriotism in which people really don't care whether or not you're, you're Russian-speaking, Ukraine-speaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you're standing behind the, the, the values of, of the country against the despotism which it's being subjected to. 
But in terms in terms of going back to this thing about you know looking for these principles and guidances, I I, I think politics is always really really messy. And in a way, one principle to to guide our institutions is that there shouldn't be a, a principle that you're always trying to balance things. So when Simon was saying, should there be a geographical dimension to the Lords? I thought perhaps not because there's a very strong geographical um, dimension to the to the other chamber, the House of Commons, right? So people are elected yeah. in terms of their constituencies. Now, if you build a system where every branch is based on regional identities, I think you're you're reinforcing yeah. one important aspect. But actually, it'd be helpful to have um, something to, to balance that. People who are not there to represent regions and places, but are there to look over the whole sort of more national interest. So I think that, yeah, the systems which work best, I think, are ones which aren't sort of too reductive about what, what fundamental principle they're trying to uphold. They're the ones that manage to achieve an uneasy sometimes balance between the different desiderata. So, you know, representation, uh, representation of regions, democratic accountability, but also rule of law. And again, things like, Chris mentioned tradition, which we haven't talked about in a way. Uh, But I think that's something which, again, perhaps we're not comfortable, to use that word again, talking about very much, because perhaps traditionally that has been associated with a kind of a bogus sense of tradition, actually, a sort of a idealised notion of Britishness, which is exclusory to a lot of people who's who don't trace their family trees back to Henry VIII. But if you think of tradition more as about an evolving, an evolving sort of thing, which is not fixed, a- any country which is has a healthy self identity has a, has a sense of that. I think, and something that needs to be balanced as well. That's a bit too rambling. I didn't leave it on any clear point to take up. I'm sorry. Well, I think everyone's just shell shocked because you were criticising what I said, Julian. So ah, well, yeah. It's a, it's but, a, yeah, but you agree, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I, I do agree. It was a good point, actually. It was a good point. So then, actually, I was then thinking, then, then what might be those other desiderata? We, I mean, we could talk about that endlessly all day. I mean, so actually, I mean, I, I did mention bishops in passing, but actually, religion might be one of them. And actually, but but religion and people of 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 no faith, and actually having representatives of of various faiths in there, it's not it's not a crazy idea to to think about. Well, I mean, what what, what I find interesting about the House of Lords, and one of, one of the reasons, one of one of the, the sort of ticks in the in the four column I have for it, is that it is a broad um, repository of of, of competence. Um, and as the, the point was well made earlier, you know, n- not everyone is there on their merits and there are, you know, inherited um, lords, etc. So it's it reforms are needed. But it is fantastic that uh, the House of Commons, which is not predicated on competence, it's predicated upon electrical, electoral success, <laughs> electrical success. Uh, but the House of Lords, um, you know, there is the possibility that a lord becomes a lord because they're good at what they have done. I think that's to, to be championed. And I think a sort of public institution um, that has some say in, in governance should at least have one of those, should at least have competence as one of its desiderata. I'm going to worry, I, I sort of suggested uh, tradition, uh, I guess, in my opening as as maybe food for thought. I, I actually, I'm not too sure if tradition is, is a value that I would hold to the same level as as competence because um because times change and events overtake us and sort of change what what might be a a good idea so a certain sense of adaptability 
um, I think one would want in, in a in a public body tradition. I wonder if if, if you can be traditional whilst also having a sense of openness to you as a as a value. I mean, one thing that that the function of the House of Lords seems to be really quite different from the function of the House of Commons. Um, so that you know their their job is not to, to to make laws. I guess the way I kind of see it is the House of Lords are supposed to stop the House of Commons from getting out of hand. That seems to be quite important to to bear in mind when we're thinking about how the House of Lords should be made up. Um, and and I think the values that we would have when we're thinking about the House of Lords and how it should be made up might be kind of different from the values that we would have in mind or that the desiderata we would have in mind when we're thinking about the, the, the House of Commons because the, because the functions are different. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's absolutely fundamental, um, Fiona. I mean, the Lords has, has changed over time, but certainly nowadays, and this goes back to Chris's opening, that the Lords is is often aiming to stop, to scrutinise, stop, to amend, to be a, a very important check on on what's going on in, in the Commons, which is the the, the, the dominant chamber, uh, and so therefore, you know, you should be having rules and principles around membership and and having members with with that function in mind. I think that's absolutely right. I was going to say, I think that links into the idea of tradition. So, what does it mean to say stop the House of Commons for doing anything utterly ridiculous and I guess in in a way, one way to think about that is not do anything which is too dramatic a change from the way things are are done, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. I mean it it can be a it can stop positive change from happening, but it also stops neg- very negative change from happening. That thought that that kind of way of interpreting tradition is kind of the informing our understanding of what is reasonable, what the limits are on what the House of Commons can do. I think that that might be an important sense of tradition. In a way, this weirdly connects with the first thing we talked about, about changing the mask rules mid-flight. There is a sense in which, you know, on a plane and in society, people have reasonable expectations about the way things are and changes should always be possible but there's always a certain kind of requirement in like the social contract to kind of not change things in the sudden and unexpected ways which members of that society would could not reasonably have anticipated or or or, or thought they were consenting to so that's a kind of a you know a very sort of it's a justification of a very sort of gentle form of respect to tradition it's not about keeping things in aspect and i think in any way i mean i think tradition is a problematic word for me because i think that as a matter of fact it's used so often to kind of uh, identify what's seen as some kind of unchanging essence <laughs> and of course tradition a real tradition is never like that. A real tradition is always evolving. Um, it stops becoming a tradition. So I, I think about this a lot in terms of food because that's one of my interests, you know. There are countries with fantastic food traditions, but 
the reason they had those fantastic food traditions was because they evolved and changed. You wouldn't have the Italian food tradition without the incorporation of new world foods and the spreading of pasta up and down the country, which wasn't common even before the Second World War. It became a vibrant tradition because it was something that grew over time and continued to change. And, and paradoxically, the people who are wanting to preserve that tradition by setting fixed rules, which means you can only make things in a certain way, are in danger of killing the very thing they want to preserve. Mm. Because once you nail it down, it's no longer a tradition. And on that note, perhaps um, we'll end that, end that segment there. Although, actually, the, the one thing I, I do want to say that's been going around my head in the last five, ten minutes is something my daughter often says at the moment, which is, Tradition is gaslighting by one's ancestors. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm sure she'll be saying that. So listen, uh, thanks very much. We will see you in the next segment when we may be tweeting from Mars. And welcome back. Earlier this week, Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter for around $43 billion, saying he wished to protect free speech. Perhaps he may well protect free speech. We can discuss that and whether he's the best person to do so. Uh, But also, this is an extremely large sum of money, and this news item follows in the wake of other news items quoting other extremely large sums of money attached to the activities of a few very wealthy individuals. Um, Chris, do you want to start exploring this for us? Yeah, so I, I thought this was interesting in uh, particular in sort of the context of Yanis Varoufakis's claim that we, we live in what he calls financial feudalism. Um, so for him, we sort of move around from enclosed bubbles to enclosed bubbles with almost no democratic accountability, um, a bit like sort of peasants used to do in the feudal system with like, you know, shareholders owning the companies and then managers and sub-managers sort of benefiting from uh, chains of patronage. Um, and we seem to like doing it more and more. Um, and so if, if, if Musk owned Twitter, he'd have quite a significant ability to control public sphere discourse, even if he, he claims that he's a free speech absolutist. But um, what he'd actually do if he single-handedly owned um, Twitter is, is anyone's guess, I suppose. So... I think about sort of 15, 20 years ago now, we were talking about uh, living in a sort of technocracy where all we had to do was sort of, you know, manage the end of history. Um, And then various things happened, uh, the the financial crisis and then COVID, I think sort of put pay to that a little bit. But what Varoufakis is sort of pointing at is, is a return to the idea that actually, you know, except for when we are dealing with, massive large-scale crises like a pandemic we kind of don't really look to governments to do anything political and in fact everything's happening in these in yeah in in these um financial feudal sort of organizations so i wanted to sort of think through that but but also he's one of these few people who kind of want to make an astounding amount of money only to then build rocket ships and then leave the planet so um do we do we need to listen to what he says anymore when he finally does? Can we just sort of ignore him? <laughs> Good questions. I mean, on, the, on that last one, if I can just come in, I, I'd I'd love to be able to ignore him for the reasons you say, right? And, and you know, and not just Elon Musk, but you know, the other individuals. I mean, whether we can afford not to um, to, to to ignore it and actually need to take it seriously, and then in some way 
probably restrict some of the actions is, is not the matter but i would love to uh in, in the spirit in which you just introduced it chris just ignore them because i don't care whether they're mega zillionaires or not if they want to get if they want to go to another planet great let them and we can get on with with um living our lives properly fiona julian you got any thoughts on on this i think it's quite interesting to compare our situation now to our situation in, in the past we worry a lot about the control that small numbers of people have over over public discourse for example over um, how opinions are made but i don't think we should sort of look back to assume there was kind of a golden age where we could all <laughs> discuss discourse freely and um you know everything was was uh there, there wasn't this kind of influence you know there there have always been people who own newspapers which have had a massive effect on how people form their opinions so i guess it's important to think about what's new about this problem and does it require any different uh, does it require something new to to respond to it i mean i might just sort of have a go at saying what i think is new with that i think you're entirely right the communication is always mediated by by technology um and um, I'll just sort of riff riff on the work of Bernard Stiegler, who I, th- I think um, was probably at the, at the pin- pinnacle of this. So he said, you know, we live increasingly in a world where we've got no real idea how anything around us actually operates to any to any minute degree. This was, you know, what Marx called um, proletarianization. And we're just so proletarianized about absolutely everything around us. Um, we have to sort of deal in, in surface effects. So on the one hand, we've got quite an impoverished understanding of how things happen around us. Um, but also, uh, increasingly, uh, there's no democratic control at all, no popular control or public control over the ways in which we, we do communicate. So like Lenin was kind of right when he said capitalism tends towards um, imperialism. We've got these massive imperial companies that sort of dominate uh, marketplaces and yeah you can have your choice between you know maybe facebook um and twitter for your communication platforms of choice but that's not really a massive massive choice when at the end of the day both of those companies um lobby american government for broadly the same sort of things as ways of sort of governing the products that they eventually come out with so um yeah i think i think that's that's kind of the issue the issue we live in an increasingly proletarianized world where it strikes me that we need an ability to think critically more than more than anything at the time when our ways of communicating even if they're faster and we can talk to more people doing them seem poorer f- for it i you know I, th- I think it's uncontroversial to say that the quality of debate that you get over twitter is um leaves a lot to be desired and probably has a large uh, part to play in like the hostility of public debate and the oppositionality of it as well Um, and you know single sentences on bbc news websites rather than full paragraphs where you can actually articulate a point properly i mean one thing that perhaps backpedaling slightly is you know the free speech uh, uh, idea and I, I, I have no time at all for like these so-called free speech absolutists because it seems very obvious that if you say that all you require for free speech is there for it to be no restrictions on speech, 
all you get there is, you know, well, the opposite of free speech, you paid for speech. <laughs> the people who have the most financial resources dominate the discourse. And, you know, we've seen this throughout. The 20th century was about mass communications before the internet. But if you think, I mean, I, I, I cover a rather unfashionable view, perhaps, which is that advertising should be much, 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 much more regulated. It seems to me that under the guise of free speech, people are allowed to essentially make false claims. And um, and, and they're allowed to get away with it because the, the bar for making a, a false claim you could be uh, held up for is, is quite literal and quite high. But people give the impression very strongly about things their products can do and what you need, which are completely wrong. And they're influencing people's choices and lives. And also, you know, the way in which as well, you know, a lot of research has been directed by the interest of industry. So there's quite a well-documented story of how um, sugar, a fat was demonized as a cause of, of obesity when people really knew the evidence was that sugar was the refined sugars were the biggest causes. But this was all to do with the funding of wealthy people um, to defend certain interests. And again, this isn't a wild conspiracy theory, by the way. It might sound like one. It's, it's, it's pretty well documented. And we see it time and time again. So, and, and, it's, and now we have these new technologies where people have huge reach. It just seems obvious that if you're going to say free speech is simply no restrictions on speech, then the, the wealthy and the powerful are going to just be able to dominate the agendas, get their views of points, suppress points of view that are often true but uncomfortable. And this is an awful thing. <laughs> so, you know, may, 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 maybe the, the free speech is even not even fit for purpose as a term anymore. You know, perhaps w what we need is something else. I don't know what it is. What we want is um, true speech. And <laughs> um, anyway, I don't, I don't make it sound like I'm, 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 I'm wanting to sort of stop people talking. But And so the, the old Elon Musk problem is this. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a hugely wealthy individual who has his own idiosyncratic views, some of which are quite cranky. And the idea that um, there's, we should have no problem with what this might entail if this person controls one of the most powerful uh, communication tools in, in the planet because free speech is free speech just seems to me incredibly naive. I, wouldn't, I mean, I wonder if we can complicate that even more. I mean, I agree with you entirely. It's, it, it seems crazy. Is there more to say that we need to be breaking up communications platforms or introducing more of them? I mean, we, we have a bunch, Signal, Telegram, things like that. But moving forward into a world which is automated to the extreme, I wonder if this is going to be a sensible suggestion or are my left-wing colleagues going to, going to slate me for it? Do we need an, a national communications platform? which is publicly owned and sort of answerable to the whims of the uh, of the polis rather than sort of capital. I'll tell you what, this is really interesting because um, I don't know if you're aware of this, Diane Coyle gave a talk as part of the previous year's Royal Institute of Philosophy series. And in, she's an economist, uh, a very sort of thoughtful economist. And she, precisely that, it was the sort of like the, um, what does she call it? The, uh, I can't remember. Anyway. The idea here is like just as we have we have the BBC and the BBC, despite all its critics, is is very successful. It's it's a public option, as she called it, for social media. So it's a public option which doesn't prevent private companies from doing their thing, 
but it, it provides a kind of a, a, a media which is far more balanced and far less um, able to be captured by political or commercial interest than anything else. And it does a brilliant service and has done for years. Not f- flawless, of course, absolutely not flawless. But the BBC World Service has often been a beacon for people around the world. And she was saying just that, we need a public option. We need some kind of a publicly owned uh, space for for internet, social media, etc., because that's the only way to have a. I mean, I mean, if we don't have that, we're simply going to have the 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 triumph of, of, the, of the wealthiest and the, the most powerful, and the consequences of that are are serious. So, I don't know if you did you inadvertently agreed with her, but that's great because it's. I think it was a great idea, and uh, I'd like to see more people taking it up. Um, quick advert: you can hear her see her talk on YouTube. Just look it up. One problem, though, with suggesting alternative platforms is that alternative platforms to for example facebook have been suggested so often and and you know basically every so often you get you know a whole bunch of people going oh i've had enough of facebook i'm taking myself off to this new platform which is ethically wonderful um and you know so much better than facebook and then a couple of weeks later, the new platform is completely dead. Nobody's doing anything on it. And so everybody migrates back to Facebook. So there's this sort of – because the, the thing about these social networks is that they're social networks. They they only work if, if enough other people – if enough other people and the right other people are on there. So it, it almost feels like there's there's this um there's just this coordination problem and, and and a kind of dreadful inertia that you know lots of people don't like Facebook for various reasons but they just keep getting sucked back onto it because that's that's where everybody else is. Um, yeah, I think you're dead right. So I think it's why you, you regulation you can't avoid the need for regulation because um, being a bit pessimistic about the, the public, <laughs> um, it's not just that. I mean, let's take the other one, for example. Uh, most people think Amazon. I don't know anyone who says Amazon is a great thing. I love Amazon. Most people say, oh, Amazon, it's awful, isn't it? But it's so convenient, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, there are, and books, there are, there are very good alternatives now. If you're in America or the UK, bookshop.org, you know, you you can buy books from them, and and a proportion of money will go to independent bookshops. Um, they will pay all their taxes. It's there. It's available. It's easy. Set up an account. How many people know about this? They're still doing it from Amazon because it's easy, and they've got their Prime thing because they want to get the videos, so they get the delivery for free. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I'm a bit. I do find it depressing how much people will go for the line of least resistance over something which is they recognise as being uh, more principled and fairer out of pure laziness. So I, so I think that we can't just rely on the fact of build, build a fairer platform, people will use it. We've seen that doesn't work. Um, it's worth doing, but in addition, you've still got to do all the regulation to sort of stop these other things being um, turning into the voice, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the mouthpieces of, of the wealthy and the powerful or whatever else might be. We, I think we might have to take some learn some some lessons from the anti anti colonial uh, struggle right here. If if 
if we're to accept the argument that these multinationals constitute empires into themselves, then what would it what would it look like to fight an anti-colonial struggle against these these companies? So I think you're right. Regulation will probably help. Um, just for example, Instagram and and Facebook implemented uh, began to implement several years ago. You know the continuous scroll. So it used to be the case when Instagram came out that you could reach the bottom of your feed. Right? You'd seen all of the photos that there were available and there's no more. You've got to wait a little bit of time to do it. And then Instagram realized that, um, uh, you know, you were getting this dopamine hit every time you saw a new a new image. And that was drawing you to use the app more and more. And it doesn't make sense to force an end to that dopamine hit. So you just keep on seeing, you know, photos that you've seen before or connected accounts and things like that. Um, so one way of one way of maybe productively fighting against this and, and legislating it might be to control the manipulation of desire that these social networks uh, sort of facilitate, and you know put a stop to maybe research into how to exploit dopamine reactions by um, by this sort of stuff. Um, you know why not? Why don't we just make that illegal? Um, you can't research, or you can't implement. Uh, technologies that manipulate dopamine responses in order to benefit your your software and and things like that right I, it'd be interesting to sort of read one struggle the struggle sort of against these ca- uh, technologies that capture attention and interest through the lens of um, something like postcolonialism or something like that I sort of see that um, that's perhaps a bit of an opaque link I mean I, I see that in the same sense that the British Empire for example and former colonies in Africa would capture the attention of sort of the the, the, the middle class of that particular country um, through kickbacks and they would make them desire the British colonial rules so that they didn't they didn't fight against it and it, it happened right the way through uh, through empire Tim wise is very interesting on this he says you know the origins of the of uh, racism in, in in America came because the the, the very wealthy landowners sort of gave the white working class, just a little bit, a little bit of money in order to oppress the black working class, therefore setting up that racial tension and making the white working class desire their own oppression. So in order to sort of fight against, yeah, the, the empire, the technology empires, as Varifak has put it, I, I wonder if, yeah, some sort of liberation of desire there might be helpful. It, it, it's really, really very interesting, actually, because I think that the way in which... Um, a lot of these sort of multinational organizations in commerce and the internet have kind of get their hold is that you talked about, you know, the colonialism worked by persuading the middle class elite. It was in their interests. I think that most, most ordinary people think that these things are in their interests. How can it not? So if you think about uh, moving on to economy a bit, but it it is related, you know, people think, what, why is it not in my interest that there are, three for two offers or, 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 or happy house, whatever it might be. There are all, all these things or free delivery or free returns. Now, there are, these things just seem like unmitigated goods, right? And I think the, 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 the parallel I see with the, the post-colonial struggle is that it's, it's making people see that there are these structures. So there were structures of post-colonialism, which were sort of inherently and ultimately uh, unjust and served the interests of the colonialists over the people they, they were governing and, and and in that case i think perhaps making those structures plain and how they are unfair and oppressive was relatively straightforward compared to the task of showing why it is that the the, the structures of of 
multinational hegemons online or in bricks and mortars, why that's not good for people, why that's ultimately oppressive. It's a really hard case because it just seems so obvious to people. It's great. I can order stuff and it's cheap and it's quick, you know. And, 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 and every time people, every time it seems that that message is getting through that it isn't, it doesn't take long for that message to sort of wear off a bit. So, for example, we were talking earlier about how in the beginning of the pandemic, there was this hope for a more pro-social kind of way of looking at things, understanding ourselves as being more connected. And everyone was expressing great solidarity with, you know, refuse collectors, delivery drivers, Uber people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, two years later and all that kind of stuff, you know, how, how better are things really for Uber and Deliveroo drivers, et cetera, et cetera. And again, like I'm in Bristol, where Bristol, you can expect, has already developed its own um, one of these people with an alternative to to Uber and Deliveroo, where it's fairer for drivers, fairer, et cetera, et cetera. And that platform's it's getting along, but it's still a fraction. You know, it's still mainly uh, because at the end of the day, people think, is how can it not be good for me to get this with like two pounds delivery rather than five pounds delivery? <laughs> you know, that's a really tough ask, isn't it? I think I, I don't want to be too pessimistic about it because I think. It's got to be done, but it's tough. Uh, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying right in the beginning, um, Chris, that we haven't actually picked up very much, but there might be an expectation that governments just manage crises such as COVID, but otherwise they're just there and just things are ticking along. Well, actually, what what needs to happen is there needs to be a kind of very large-scale state kind of intervention to do various things in this way to see that this is kind of perhaps not an immediate crisis, but something that's developed over time that needs to be stopped and changed. Um, and actually only a state can do that. We, we're not going to rely on Elon Musk or anyone else to, to do it and, and be that benign dictator. And in fact, we may not want a dictator anyway. We want to have a kind of representative government, whatever whatever we say about the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to actually yeah. intervene and make, and make the world a better place, right? But interestingly enough, I like to perhaps someone can Google a statistic uh, straight away. But I'm wondering when when the public are asked what institutions they trust uh, the most and the least, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people actually trust even things like Twitter and Facebook more than they do governments. This is this lack of trust in government is very, very, very disturbing in, in certain countries, at least. And so in order, in order to do what you're suggesting, Simon, which I'd agree with, you, you need to have the public to believe that the government is acting in their interests more than uh, businesses are. And I'd like to know the numbers on that, but I suspect that if we looked at public trust in these things, we, we might be alarmed. I, I only know some figures that there are now a few years out of date, um, but so sort of six or seven years ago now, um, there was only one profession in the UK that was trusted less than politicians and it was estate agents um, <laughs> so you're probably right but what what what's what I would find interesting actually is knowing that statistic but comparatively with different sort of forms of government so what was really interesting in the in the pandemic was like the South Korean response to uh, the pandemic in comparison to the British response in that um, the South Korean government could look at, uh, at citizens like credit card histories 
Um, they didn't even have to pre- pass any special laws to do it. They just had access to credit histories in order to trace where it is that individuals had been so that their track and trace system could be more effective. I mean, could you imagine the Tories trying to put through a bill that would allow them to look at our credit histories now? It just wouldn't happen. So it strikes me that there must be much greater trust in their in the South Korean government by South Koreans than, than in, in, in the UK. But it doesn't seem like the British government are too set on um, building more trust. <laughs> it's very, it's it's very um, depressing because things like like Partygate, for example, I know a lot of people for whom that hasn't affected their kind of political leanings. It's just made them think all politicians are untrustworthy. They're all the same. There's no, there's, there's you know, it's as if we've got into a situation now where bad behavior by politicians does not lead to affect those politicians careers instead it lessens general trust in in politicians in general and that's just that's so depressing because it makes the possibility of change just um just feel feel utterly out of reach Sorry, I don't want to depress everybody. <laughs> I see, see, we get, with this discussion, we're going for 25 minutes and, and I'm, I'm wanting one of the three of you to end on a really optimistic point. Otherwise, our listeners will be there chopping their carrots or going on their jog and just being depressed and will say, see you next week, everyone. <laughs> and, um, but, I mean, everything you say is right. Sure, surely, surely there, there, must, there must be green shoots somewhere. What are the green shoots? I mean, what, what wasn't... Wasn't Marx right when he said, you know, on the on the on the shores on the Kentish shores that what's the purpose in life and it's to struggle, right? It, it, yeah, there's lots of bad stuff around us, but we need a coherent um, political message that has to be formed, and it's only going to be formed if people get around and actually and actually do it. So if we wanted to do, here's here's the positive message: if we want positive political change, don't we have to get stuck in and do it ourselves? Yeah, do well, it. A few other green shoots as well, actually. Um, uh, to talk about you know behavior i mean i think the in the ukraine thing is just is depressing that would be depressing to end on that but how have most people reacted to that they have been positive about um immigration accepting refugees sorry not immigration because it's refugees and they've also i believe there's been very high spread public support to you know to 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 accept a certain amount of economic hardship as the price to pay for standing up to things. So, I, I, And also, we also see in the UK, for example, small bookshops, small greengrocers, both two things which have been reviving a bit, having been almost wiped out by by, by big chains. So I think if you, you said green shoots, Simon, and it, it, we're not talking about sort of like anything too, too grand yet, but I, I think we've got some reason for thinking that when people really see what certain choices mean and what what it what it would mean to just um, let power and money dominate. They, they they can see that's not a good thing, and, and and there is at least evidence of some willingness to to change behaviour um, if necessary. Some hope. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right, and let, let me just sort of row back on some of my triteness earlier um, with 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 more of a with more substantive green shoot. Um, you don't have to be a fully automated luxury communist to to sort of see that, um, as Julian was saying, you know, small 
shops are starting to, ve- to, de- to, de- to develop. And there, there are signs that as more sort of white goods shops move online and off the high street and you sort of see these big generic high streets sort of start to disappear, local councils are starting to zone these areas more and more for like local independent shops. And so there's a chance that, or if, if there's a chance that if we thought about this well and we designed things right, and that's the caveat, we might be able to see really interesting towns develop in um, in local areas, and all of the stuff that you can buy online that's sort of governed by um, sort of large multinational uh, capital might disappear online. So we can go there if we want it, but actually we start to enjoy our slightly better cultivated. Uh, local environments that's those are good green shoots to end on <laughs> um uh listen thank you uh, julian fiona chris for uh being with us uh this week it's been really good to, to talk and chew things over with you um, i hope we'll have the three of you back soon and thanks to all of you for for listening to all our discussions and for hanging on to the end to listen to all those optimistic notes uh, all being well I'll be talking with you again uh next week Thank you.